Welcome to the Sermon Podcast at Bethel. We're a covenant church located in western Wisconsin, and you can find out more information about us at BethelCov.org. My name is Todd Speaker. I'm the pastor here, and I want to thank you for listening. Um, I'm going to read a scripture this morning. If you want to follow, it's at Luke 10, uh, Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 to 29, and 35 to 37. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. So it's Luke 10, 25 to 29, and then 35 to 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and testified to him, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself to Jesus, and who is, my, who is my neighbor? And in 35, on the next day, he departed out and he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to them, take care of him and whatever you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell amongst the thieves? And he said to them, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, our guest uh, uh, preacher today, or uh, pastor, is bringing the word, is Pastor uh, Kaya Villa, who is with the Evangelical Covenant Church, and um, a longtime friend of uh, uh, Pastor Todd. So we want to get a warm welcome to uh, Pastor Kaya Villa. Thank you. Good morning, church. It's an honor to be here with you today. So one of the best baptism services I've ever witnessed took place at this historic covenant church. They identify a little bit more with the Lutheran side of the covenant, so they usually um, do infant baptisms. And normally after the water and the words and the promises, the pastor will take the baby in his arms and walk all down the main aisle, right? And say things like, church, this is so-and-so. And they'll do the baby's whole name, the first name, the middle name, right, and so forth. And then born to parents, so-and-so, occasionally even to grandparents, so-and-so. It's beautiful. And then on the way back up to the front, the church, the pastor usually turns the tables. And maybe this time, if it's a he or she, she'll say, uh, she'll say, baby, this is your church. And these are going to be your Sunday school teachers and your youth leaders. And um, they'll be here to chaperone you on trips. And when you've got questions, they're the ones you can turn to. They will come, they will help you come to know God. And then the pastor and the baby, they usually stop about halfway back up. And the congregation, because they've got that great middle aisle, right? (laughs) They both face each other, both sides face each other, and they reach out their hands towards 
the pastor and the baby, and they sing the benediction. And the spirit is always undeniably present, and a few of us get weepy, predictably, I say, right? But memorably, on the morning I recall, the child to be baptized was 11. She had come to the church from a grade school across the street. She came for homework help on Wednesday nights, and she stayed for the free supper, and then she stayed a little longer for, you know, the, the club activities. She learned about Jesus. She asked a lot of questions, and then she went home, and to her surprise, she told her parents all about it. To her surprise, she found out that they already knew the story. It had just been a while since they had thought about it. But they were glad for her. They even began to come to church with her on Sunday mornings. And so a few months on, the girl decided on her own that she wanted to follow Jesus. And not long later, without prompting, she asked to be baptized. This is faith in action, we thought. So they made some room in the schedule, and the children's pastor walked her down the aisle that morning, and he told us her name, even her middle name, which made her giggle. He told us how she liked to read books and draw horses, and she was pretty good at Foursquare. He told us how she came to know Jesus. And then he walked her back up, and he said, so, so-and-so, you, you know most of us already, or many of us, I guess, but child, this is your church. These are your people. They have promised to love you and teach you and help you from everything from long division to unsolicited dating advice when you get a little older. They will take you to church camp and chaperone your youth trips and send you care packages when you go to college. They will be your church. And then they stopped and we stretched out our hands and we sang the benediction. And she beamed this beautiful smile and more of us wept than normal. Because this, this was the church doing exactly what she's supposed to do. So this morning, I come with joy to congratulate you because Pastor Todd tells me that Bethel celebrates 141 years today, (laughs) which is kind of remarkable. And it's such a lovely testament to the, the grace of God on display in a local body of believers. And when we come, I mean, that's probably what, like five, six generations maybe. That's a long time to be in one faithful place. And I think a story this long with such a rich heritage, it's a blessing not just for uh, the descendants of all those first families who gathered, right, at Bethel, but it's also for a blessing for the, the region, for Ellsworth, and for the people who have come to faith through your ministry and presence. And I think when an anniversary like this comes along, we get invited to reflect on our heritage and ask some questions. What kind of faith gets us to the point of passing the baton? What exactly makes our faith living? What rhythms and relationships keep the faith that our foremothers and fathers had, keep that faith alive and then do the same for us? And what do we have in our hands that we can give to the next generation that keeps us different from society? Because we can love the people in society, but our society has governing forces that are kind of like a riptide, if you've ever gone to a big lake, right? Or the ocean, maybe. And that riptide is bent on eroding and erasing the distinctive attributes of a community who says they're going to follow Jesus. So what do we have to pass on? Today we're going to explore three aspects of a faith that is really alive. And so I want you, I I know your bulletin doesn't have a lot of white space, but maybe if you can find some spot or a a scratch of paper, right? Go ahead and make yourself a triangle. Draw yourself a triangle for notes. 
and each triangle is going to, each corner is going to have one word that helps us think about aspects of a faith that are alive, that help us pass something on, whether it be to our neighbors, our colleagues, people our age or younger. So the corners are adoration, identification, and cultivation. Now, thanks so much for reading the scripture. I'm not sure what happened. There was some wires that got crossed. I didn't ask Pastor Todd to skip the middle part, so we'll have to rely on her memory. <laughs> but it's a good story, this business of the Good Samaritan. Most of us have heard it before. And the part that got jumped over is where he sees the man that was so beat up on the road, and he scoops him up and washes him and cares for him. So I, I like the way it starts because it says, uh, let's see, it says, I think in verse, let me pull it up real quick. In verse 25, it says an expert in the law, although I like the lawyer bit too, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think to myself, this guy's asking the right question, right? That's kind of what we want. It's what we want for our children. It's want for our neighbors. And so he says, well, uh, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And I have to chuckle because he started with a good, clear question. And I don't know about you, but I think I would appreciate a good, clear answer from Jesus' mouth, right? But it's just this moment, classic Jesus, he takes the question and he turns around and he asks another one. All right, well, here we go. I don't know. How do you read it, right? So one gets the impression that the young man, I don't know if he's young or old, the expert in the law, but you get the impression he's kind of switching into that um, the catechism mode, maybe he went to Awana for a lot of years. He says, no problem, I got this one. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you get the impression he's a little bit glib, right? Like he's reciting it, almost chanting it. You know, really, Jesus, come on, I know the answer, but, but give me the real nugget. What do I need to do here? And I can note that he's a little dismissive, but it's ironic when I note that because I almost wanted to skip over this part of the story and get to the good part, right? <laughs> I mean, the Good Samaritan is one of my favorite titles in the bedtime Bible storybook. I want to skip over this part and get to the part where there's some action. But back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. So I think it's worth, maybe our first bus stop this morning is right there, this business of love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And throughout the, pa the pages of the Old Testament, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, through the prophets, through Job and the Psalms, I read time and time and time again that I am called to acknowledge God and to glorify God. And I'm supposed to tell God, both in my soul and maybe with my voice and definitely when I'm with other, others in the assembly, I'm supposed to tell God that God is God, and I am not. I 
can tell you guys are the Stoics or somewhere else that might get an amen. But yes, God is God, <laughs> and I am not. And I am supposed to think about how God is majestic and merciful and holy and forgiving. God knows everything. God can do everything. And God is worthy. Our $5 word this morning is numinous, which means completely outside of human experience, awe-inspiring, right? God is God, and we are not. And kind of like Moses in front of the burning bush or Isaiah with the coals, we come to this point where we recognize that we are sinful creatures, but dust, they say, right? But God is perfect and immortal. And this, this business of what we're supposed to declare is actually supposed to mark all of our days. We're supposed to acknowledge God's attributes in front of our co-workers and our neighbors and our children. To order our days so that our days orbit this truth that God is God. And when we rise and when we lay down and even when we rock on the road, even when we load the troops into the minivan, What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to say this here, O Israel, the Lord your God, right? The Lord is one. God is God. And we are not. And we're supposed to post this on our screensavers and on the portal to wherever we go in and out during our day. We can tie it on our foreheads. God is God. And God is worthy of our praise. You know some of these verses from your days in Awana or wherever you had, right? We're we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him. We enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. We're to sing a new song. We're to ascribe worship to God and ascribe him the honor that is due his name. You know that baby toy? The one where the kiddos try to sort the shapes and they put the square peg into the square hole and the circle peg into the circle hole. You know what I'm talking about? The triangle one goes in the triangle hole. Well, the entire witness of the law and the prophets let us know that as human beings made in the image of our creator, we have found the place that we're designed to be when we prioritize adoration. We're the circle peg in the circle hole. This is where we belong when we as humans are engaged in the business of telling God that God is God. And this is just as important for adults as well as children. And it's important for our children to see the adults doing this. When we adore God, it doesn't just please God and honor God, but something inside of us happens in that moment too because we recognize our dependence and we are rightfully humbled. We're recalibrated. And the wind of the Spirit blows in and through us, and we are made alive. And conversely, when we neglect to adore the God who made us, then our inaction is suffocating to our faith. Now we know that Jesus is ever our example, right? So what did he do? Did he make time to worship the Father? The Gospels tell us that his first attention was always toward God. Jesus adored, he worshipped, he gazed at the God who is invisible, and he attended, he listened to the voice of God that we usually can only hear in our hearts. Jesus prioritized worship. He confided to God in prayer. He communed. In fact, 
as illustrated by his 40 days in the wilderness right after his baptism, right? Jesus' whole public ministry only comes out of the overflow of his time with God. If we hope to have a public ministry, if we hope to have something to pass on, then that has to come out of the overflow of our time with God. And so I wonder in our desire to pass on a living faith, what is our posture toward God? Today and every day, God calls us toward adoration, toward contemplation of the divine. That's a big word, but it doesn't have to be a big complicated thing to walk through a field and wonder at the God who made it all. We're to worship, whether we're alone, at home, in our family, or together in the assembly. We are to worship God. All right, so let's play devil's advocate for a moment. If adoration is really the secret to a living faith that's going to stand the test of time, then how come the priest and the Levite are kind of the anti-examples in this story? I mean, they're, they're like professional worshipers, right? Uh, and I bet if we asked them, they would have told us they're pretty good at it. In fact, that's probably one of the reasons they would have cited when, you know, grilled or put on the hot spot about why precisely they just crossed to the other side of the street. Why did they avoid the one who was so hurt? Why did they pick up the remote and flip the channel away from his suffering? Why did they scroll right on past his story and move to the next comfortable story in their newsfeed? Why did they do that? I mean, we do, I do this too. So we just, we, we like to pull up that verse from Philippians, you know, the one that says, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and admirable, think about those things. Hmm. God likes people who keep their noses clean, right? Maybe we, we just like to sing to God the verse of Psalm 16 that says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. The uncomfortable thing about adoration is that once we begin to pay attention to the character of the one that we say we're admiring, the one we say we're adoring, pretty soon things get a little bit squirmy. <laughs> what is this character of the God that we adore? Because we realize that the king we worship calls us to see others differently than we're naturally inclined to do. The actual details about what kind of person God was when he took on flesh are a little bit disquieting because real Jesus was poor and likely brown and he lived in an empire where he was not a citizen. He worked with his hands. He was a refugee before he was out of diapers. Huh. As an adult, he was even homeless at times. He had questionable friends. In Jesus, we meet a God who is undeniably oriented toward the less fortunate, toward the disenfranchised, towards the powerless, and towards the suffering. And so the second tip of our faith in action, the second triangle tip, is identification. Because God calls us to identify with others, not from a place of superiority, but from a place of seeing what we've got in common. Following the way of Jesus in a living walk of faith means that we learn alternative to Cain's bitter retort. 
Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes. Yes, I am. I am my sister's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Holy Spirit inside of us answers yes. Now, the Samaritan, when he was traveling on the road and he saw the injured traveler, he took pity on him. And arrested by their common humanity, he identified with the suffering and with the vulnerable. Now, in the law that the expert had learned since childhood, which, I mean, since childhood, it means that there was somebody investing in him, right? Since childhood, he doesn't learn this stuff automatically. God calls us to see one another humbly, without superiority. And now that Jesus has come, we not only recognize that we have common humanity, that we're both made in God's image, but we also see more clearly our common need for grace. It's easy to see somebody else's need for grace. But in light of Jesus, we remember we have that same need for grace. In the light of Jesus' love, there's no room for prejudice or for long, long grudges. We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that is hard, friends. Some of you know that even more than I do. That is hard. But Jesus seems to have no sympathy for us here. He calls us to faith in action, not faith in action. <laughs> Rather than cutting us some slack, he seems to take things even further. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, he said we're not just supposed to love our neighbors, we're supposed to love, he dials it up, we're supposed to love our enemies. And this is unbelievably uncomfortable. It prompts us in the church to all sorts of defensive maneuvers right away. Enemies? What enemies? I, I don't have any enemies. Evidently, we're not alone, because in the passage it said that the man wanted to justify himself, too. And so he asked God, who is my neighbor? Read, how exactly is my love obligation to extend? I mean, is it to the poor, to the foreigner, to the vulnerable? What about just to the plain old offensive? Is it to the apostate? How far is this love that you're calling me? What, what is this love supposed to look like, anyhow? I mean, let's be real. We live in an information age that they could not possibly have imagined. We're bombarded hourly on our phone with stories of war and famine and planet groaning and human suffering. And I've got a son. He's 10 years old. 10 years old. And the war in Syria was already happening when he was born, which means that there's 10-year-olds out there who've never tasted anything but war. And there's kids his age in Venezuela and Yemen and Ethiopia who are dying of starvation. And the mothers have nothing to feed the babies at bedtime. And they say that the U.S. has only 5% of the world's population, but it's got 20% of the world's prisoners. So what's up with that? And in 30 years, there's going to be more plastic than fish in the oceans. And now there's COVID. I mean... It's true, right? Some of this stuff is a bit overwhelming. So Jesus, tell us, in which one of these hurting situations are we supposed to look to find our neighbor? It is legitimately overwhelming. Holy Spirit, we need your help. And in the face of such onslaught, is it any wonder that the priest and the Levite and we who are insulated too often, we often prefer to walk across the street away from the chaos and there, with a little distance between us, unchallenged by proximity, that's where we're free to indulge in the fanciful and convenient theologies that 
imagine our wealth and our comfort to be a reflection of our virtue, or worse yet, attribute the suffering of others to some sort of moral deficiency. I mean, uh, Haitians or Central American Christians at our Texas border, Muslim Afghanis at Fort McCoy, not two hours away, three hours away, right? Any suggestion that we who enjoy abundance carry an obligation towards those who suffer, it makes us a little bit wary. We'd rather not identify with others. And the command of Jesus toward neighbor love is enough to make anybody feel defensive, but then he comes along and he talks about enemy love, and it's, well, it's almost hard to think of anything harder. But the work of a living faith is to engage and to wrestle and to daily work at figuring out what this looks like. And the people around us, our colleagues, our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus, our children, they need to see us working to figure out what this looks like. It's okay if we don't always have all the answers. It's okay if we stumble at times. It's okay if we have to confess our selfishness from time to time. But if we want a faith that is actively strong enough to be able to pass on to somebody else, then they need to see us engaged in the hard work of trying to work on this, this hard thing that we're called to, to love our neighbor as ourself. We're a little bit more like Jonah, right, than we care to admit. We'll hop about going in any direction but one, rather than admit that the ones whose existence we'd rather ignore, or even the ones for whom we harbor disdain, are loved by God to the same degree that God loves us. But God calls us to identification because God identifies with God's creation. The very last verse in Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, God says, And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their and also many animals? God identifies with creation. So what does identification look like in my story? When God says to love my neighbor, is it simply enough to surrender my desire for vengeance? It's a good start. Or do I have to really imagine myself in their shoes? Do I truly have to want what's best for them? And Jesus says, well, what's in the law? How do you read it? <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> in full transparency, something I've been wrestling with lately is how it's almost easier to love or identify with our neighbor who's completely unchurched or those who are materially poor than it can be to love fellow believers who see things differently than we do. Do you know what I'm talking about? Our sense of betrayal, our keen disappointment when the church has let us down or it's divided, well, that sense is formidable. And I've been dwelling this week on the list, this, this theme of proximity and identification when all I want to do sometimes is just the opposite. And the Samaritans and Jews, it's crazy that he picked Samaritan as a guide in the story, right? Because the Samaritans and the Jews, they were like brothers and sisters, and they had fights. They had fights about who's okay to marry. And they had fights about when and where and how they're supposed to worship. Masks or, or no masks, right? They had fights. <laughs> I 
And those fights made their divide all the more bitter. But this is the divide that Jesus chooses to highlight. And Jesus says we're supposed to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So what does that look like? What does it demand? Is there a time when division is painful but necessary? Or should it always be avoided at all costs? A living faith, a faith in action that is worth passing on as an inheritance doesn't always have all of the answers beforehand at the ready, right? But it, the people watching us need to see us doing the hard work of figuring it out, of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Prayerfully and humbly on a daily basis. And we don't know. I mean, 141 years ago when they started Bethel, that was a long time ago. We don't know what kind of challenges the generations that come after us are going to face. I mean, imagine trying to explain to one of those guys what it's like to parent a teenager through TikTok. For real. That's so different from where they lived. And one day our challenges are going to be viewed about that, same, about that level of obsolete, right? But the faith that we pass on by example will equip the ones who watch us. If we remain engaged and we model what it's like to do the hard work of unpacking it and working it out. And it can be tempting, it can be tempting, especially as we get a little older and set in our ways, to just have and be comfortable and not really do the hard work of asking ourselves those questions that make us squirmy. <laughs> well, who exactly is my neighbor today, Jesus? But a living faith relies on the Holy Spirit it draws near to God and neighbor, and it faithfully goes about the work to unpack and apply the gospel. Our third aspect of living active faith found in this story is cultivation. I drove by a lot of fields this morning. They were gorgeous, guys. You guys know about cultivation way more than I do. Cultivation of kingdom priorities requires that we get down on our hands and knees and we put our hands in the fertilizer. cultivation of kingdom priorities looks like servanthood and generosity even when you have no hope that the other might ever repay you. Cultivation of kingdom priorities recognizes the validity of passing on faith happens both inside the church and outside the church. So it looks like teaching Sunday school, it looks like, I don't know, deacon meetings even when the game is on. But it also looks like the food shelf. And it looks like volunteering to help those third graders get up to reading level. Cultivation of kingdom priorities is equally valid in and out of the church. <laughs> Cultivation is faith in action. It's partnership with the divine. Because God alone, right, we can weed, we can turn the soil over, we can plant. But who's the only one who can make things grow? Cultivation is faith in action. You know, motherhood is many things, but it is universally messy. It is visceral. I mean, starting from the very first moments, we're like afterbirth to diapers to, to laundry of early teenage boys, the odors are unmentionable from the pulpit, right? <laughs> like motherhood, parenthood really is messy. It's gross. But love makes things bearable. And some of you are caregivers uh, the other direction too, right? Looking after aging parents and family members who are disabled or sick. Love makes all sorts of unpleasant tasks 
barely sometimes, but it makes them bearable. And in this, Samar- in this story, the Samaritan, he so loved his neighbor that he scooped up the bloody pulp of the man that he found, and in the process, his own garment was unavoidably stained, right? He couldn't have picked up this guy and then remained completely clean. He set the enemy on his donkey, and so now he was inconvenienced, and he had to walk himself. And he carried him into the inn, and he paid for the room, and then he gave him first aid all night long. And he wiped the gravel out of the abrasions, and he bathed him, and he made a compress for the swelling, and he shampooed the matted hair that was turning into a scab, and he rubbed oil on his skin. When's the last time you rubbed oil on anybody? I mean, really rubbed it in. You feel the slip of it, and it spreads, and you, you rub, and there's warmth. And it's incredibly intimate, and it's personal, and it's involved, and it's not dispassionate. It's not removed. It's never done from a place of superiority. When you rub oil on someone, you're serving them. And Jesus told them, go and do likewise. Cultivation is service. It's often unsung, but it's selfless. And it makes an indelible impression on anyone who witnesses it. Do you hear me? We're looking for a faith that is something that we pass on. Cultivation of kingdom priorities in a humble way that is willing to be inconvenienced, that's willing to, be, to get dirty, to put our hands in the muck. Cultivation of kingdom priorities makes an indelible impression on those who are watching. <laughs> Adoration. Identification, cultivation. These are the marks of faith in action. Faith that is strong enough to be passed on. It begins with adoration. And all of Jesus' public ministry was from the overflow of his time in prayer and worship. And a living faith identifies with the neighbors that God sets in our path and seeks the guidance of the Holy Spirit, because that's what it takes, right? (laughs) To know what God's love entails in each new and challenging scenario that we're faced with. And finally, a life-giving faith bends our knees to the tasks of cultivation. We're unafraid to enter the muck of real life and real needs because this faith applies oneself to the task at hand. It plants and weeds and turns over the soil both in and outside the church. And the faithfulness and service and cultivation is rewarded by the God who makes things grow. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. I want to invite you to join us in worship Sundays at 10 a.m., both in person or online at facebook.com slash Bethel Covenant Church. Thanks and have a great day.